0: to All That Matters, and I'm Sarah Campbell of And
1: I'm Josh Turpin.
0: Josh, I'm going to read you three quotes. I want you to listen to all three and tell me what they all have in common. I wonder if women who go into labor on Labor Day find it funny? The first words many people speak each day are, hi, can I please have? When you're criticized for being short, they're really just saying that the worst thing about you is that there isn't more of you. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm not too sure, but I think I might use that last one as a pickup line.
0: Okay, well, there's shower quotes from Reddit. Those little phrases that pop into people's heads when they're in the shower. And here's another shower thought for you. What if good ideas only come to us when we're in the shower because that's the only part of the day when we don't have headphones in our ears or a screen in front of our face? Whoa. Mm hmm. Well, other matters tell stories about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question.
1: Today, we're asking what draws us into living off the grid? You're going to hear about an oyster farming in the moonlight and curious cougars.
0: But first, we want to understand what draws people out off the grid from a young age, and if anyone can do it. We spoke with college student Mark Clarabut, who works in Algonquin Park in Ontario, one of the world's largest parks in the world. We asked him what drove him to start a life off the grid.
1: Mark, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Why don't you tell our listeners where you are right now?
2: Uh, currently out on Northwest Access Point for Algonquin Park, which is uh, one of the larger parks in, our largest park in Ontario, one of the larger in the world.
1: Really? How big uh, is it? Do you know?
2: Uh, I don't know the square, but I know it's about half the size of Wales. I'm currently down at our sun deck uh, down the lake, and uh, it's clear sky here, so seeing plenty of plenty of stars. Um, I was out here about an hour ago to see the sunset, and you know, a lot of colors there, pinks and oranges. And, well, no.
1: What's the uh, What's the name of the lake? Uh,
2: this is Smythe Lake. Uh, the locals call it Surprise Lake. There's a kind of a stupid story behind it. What's the story? Uh, well, according to them, uh, the Ministry of Natural Resources came through uh, and put a dam in the course of one day. And apparently the locals were either at work or something, and they never noticed. Uh, and so they went to sleep that night, and the next morning, they woke up to a lake in their backyard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that sounds horrible.
2: <laughs> yeah, so that's what I was like. But, you know, they've adapted well. There's motorboats and whatnot on here. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two boats, actually, other than our canoes.
1: Okay, I guess it's now it's like waterfront properties, so...
2: Yeah, so just a couple cottages. Yeah, uh, no one really stays here all year long. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty remote, so clearing uh, for snow and whatnot get about five feet up here—it's pretty difficult.
1: Oh wow! So are you considered to be off the grid?
2: Yes, yeah. yeah. Our only our only fuel is propane, which is still considered off the grid. So there's no electricity.
0: No electricity. Uh, all the lighting is done with propane. We have uh, what they're called
2: mantles. There's like a slow burning wick sort of thing and it's all firewood for heating
1: Mm, that's that's awesome and now is the um the location where you're at is it all year round do people go up there all year round to check out along park
2: there's a a summer season that's really lengthy it's about uh, six months and then they take about a um, two month siesta in the fall where things quiet down and then they have a really good winter program. Where they do uh, cross country skiing, snowshoeing, and dog sledding. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, how long have you have you been up there in Algonquin?
2: Uh, about two months now. Uh, I started a little later in the season, about halfway. Most guides have been out here for about at least four months, uh, and you can start to tell. You know, like you're, uh, you're living, working, and eating with all these people like all year round, or not all year round, but all season, and. Uh, you get to know each other and you get to see their internets and what bugs and what doesn't and uh <laughs> later in the season you definitely start to see their uh their wear and tear from working so long
1: yeah for so many days why are you out there?
2: oh geez um it's very much a different way of life uh you know I don't like big cities so and big cities have a lot of of their own cultures and uh social standards is what I I strong uh, it really clears the mind um mm-hmm. Let's you relax, let's you focus. And uh, I think a lot of people here would agree with me. Um, and there are people who are in transition points in their life, and this is a step in a different direction for them, um, much like myself.
1: Have you always been, I guess, in love with nature, or in love with the adventure of nature?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I was about six years old, my uh, parents and I and my sister we all moved uh, about thirty minutes outside of my city boundary, which was originally Kingston, um, to uh, about a hundred acre lot with a with a house in the middle of it. And um, I grew up there all my life, you know, until the age eighteen. I went off to to university in, at Carleton in Ottawa, and um, I enjoyed every minute. I lived out there. I explored a lot. I uh, most of my summers were spent roaming my backyard and. Most of my winters were spent skiing on the small ponds or skating on the small ponds I found, and um, you know it's. I, I believe my upbringing brought me to a job such as this, which which I believe is what I've been seeking.
1: The um, the art group, the group of seven, has done a number of uh, nature paintings, and a large majority of them, or at least recognizable ones, are in Algonquin Park. Yeah. Are you aware of any of this, or do you, can you tell us yeah, some stories yeah, um, that you know of about the Group of Seven being in, in Algonquin? Uh,
2: one of the members, uh, Tom Thompson is his name, uh, he used to visit a friend of, a friend of his. He owns a cottage on a lake that is the exact same lake one of our sites is on. And uh, he used to paint uh, Impressionist paintings along with the rest of Group of Seven um, for the landscapes in the area. And uh, there's, there's quite a few famous ones, and um, I believe my, my boss has one or two as mm-hmm. well. Uh, although I'm sure they're prints. But yeah, the uh, the cabin that Tom Thompson visited uh, is now in possession of my boss and he uses it as a as a place to live when he's overlooking the job out here because um, usually he lives in Toronto. Uh, and I've been to see it. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's a really nice cabin. It's on a small island in the middle of this lake that uh, has absolutely amazing sunrises. Just, just stunning.
1: You mentioned uh, you were trying to escape the culture of big cities. Do you think living off the grid is a culture of its own? Yes.
2: I, I, I completely believe that. Um, and it's not that I don't like cultures. That's that would that's not true. It's just that I don't like the, the restrictions that some of them put on your life.
1: How has this uh, experience changed your life?
2: Uh, in a positive way. Uh, going into this, I would have considered myself a bit of an introvert. Um... Mm-hmm not always seeking social engagements, but uh, now after working here for in these last two months, I've, I've come accustomed to a human, a human companionship, I guess, and I'm always looking for people to hang out with and, and uh, people to talk to, and it's uh, meeting all these people, the tourists coming from all over the world and coming to explore this, uh, this place I'll call home. It's, uh, it's nice to be able to show them around as well. Uh, Because like to me, it's it's my backyard, and to them, it's the other side of the world. So it's pretty cool.
1: Do you think that's uh, that has something to do with like being out in the wilderness? You know, the sort of uh, companionship you look for.
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, it's it's sort of like you got to work together to survive, sort of thing. Um, And like you see teamwork all, all throughout the day. Like it doesn't matter whether you're waking up or you're going to bed. Or you're covering someone else's uh, work at some point or another. Um, we have share a load here, and it uh, definitely makes for a close bond.
1: Now, how has this experience uh, changed your uh, your path, if if I could use that word?
2: Mm, like my future goals.
1: Yeah, future goals, career.
2: After taking this job, after about a month of working, I've uh, I changed my. Uh, college, university applications from, uh, geomatics based, which is like computer mapping, uh, to outdoor adventure programs, which is more like guiding and whatnot. Um, and so I'd be getting a lot of certifications and stuff through there and, uh, hopefully off to, to doing some cool stuff in some different locations.
1: Such as what?
2: Um, most likely guiding. Uh, I am hoping for a job abroad somewhere. I'm not really sure yet where yet. Um, but I'm kind of getting feelers that I've gotten a few contacts. So uh, things are looking good.
1: What kind of certificates will you get?
2: Um, uh, Willingness First Aid courses, most importantly, uh, and Willingness First Responder, which is the next level up for that. Uh, they're crucial uh, crucial certifications to have for this sort of job. Um, specifically, because you're working in a remote area, uh, EMS response times are very slow if, the, if that, if they even exist. So, you know, you've got to call in a chopper, if not, or something, if you're in the middle of the park or middle of the wilderness. Um, so being able to keep the victim stable for a long period of time is important with limited supplies as well. Um, outside of that, you're getting a lot of hard skill training. So canoeing, sea kayaking, uh, whitewater rafting, um, and, you know, some wild edibles instructions, which is great for long trips, you know, pack less food and eat off the land.
1: So, Mark, do you think people like myself, someone from the city, should go out into the bush and explore?
2: Yeah, yeah, um, and more specifically, I think they should do that in places near their home. You know, like, uh, if you're from on if you're from Ontario, do it in Ontario. If you're from uh, British Columbia, or, I guess uh, you're in a, you guys are in Alberta, um, do it in Alberta. You know, there's there's so much to see in your own in your own. Habitat. You live in a habitat, believe it or not. There's so much to see and explore. Um, it would make you proud to know what you're living amongst. Um, and I believe the more you know of it, the more you'd be willing to protect it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Well, thank you, Mark, for uh, joining us today at CGSR and All That Matters. You're very welcome. We'll, we'll hope to talk to you later, if we can get in touch with you off the grid.
2: All right. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks to Mark Clairbutt for speaking with us.
3: I'm on high. Oh, I've never felt like this before. Got to let it go. And I'll shout it out. I will sing it from the heart.
0: You're listening to All That Matters from CGSR. I'm Sarah Kimbo-Fazema. And I'm Josh Turpin. Today we're asking, what draws us to go off the grid? Okay, I want to do a quick test of how far you would go off to the, how far you would go to be off the grid. There are no wrong answers. Just tell me if you think this is far enough. Scenario 1. You're in a spaceship on the dark side of the moon, cut off from contact with Earth, but there's one other astronaut in the ship with you.
1: Uh I th- I think that's a little too far, but But I would definitely go to space if I could.
0: Okay, Scenario 2. You're a monk in one of those Belgian Trappist monasteries, and you're totally self-sufficient for power. You have no telephone, but tourists come and visit you every week to see your brewery. That sounds pretty good. And then the last one, Scenario 3. You live in the Discovery Islands between the coast of mainland mainland British Columbia and Vancouver Island, and you raise a family where you're totally self-sufficient.
1: Well, I I don't have to imagine, because our next guest is Judith Wright, and she does just that. It's good to have you here on CGSR and All That Matters. How are you today?
0: Very
3: well, thank you. It's good weather out here on the coast. Where are you exactly? Where do you live? I'm on a small island in the Discovery Islands, uh, off Campbell River, between the mainland and Campbell River.
1: Okay, and, and how long have you lived there?
3: 37 years.
1: 37 years, and now yeah. would you consider it to be off the grid?
3: Oh, definitely. There's no no power lines coming this way. Uh, the only really good connection we've got these days is satellite internet, which has made a huge difference, but that's um, really only hard connection we've got to the real world.
1: Hmm, um, so there, so do you have electricity, do you have power?
3: I have power that I make myself by um, solar panels, um, a little hydro wheel in the winter time and a backup generator for the times when I really need it um, and the other systems fail.
1: Wow, um, now did you set all that stuff up yourself?
3: Yeah, I, we did it um, cheap because we didn't have any money when we came out here. So everything had to be learned and then um, that learning applied however we could do it by hook or by crook. So everything <laughs> we did was done with spare parts and um, an alternator off the old truck and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, we put it all together ourselves wow. and learned a lot in the process.
1: Yeah, I bet. What do you What do you eat?
3: Oh, we eat food, Uh, (laughs) like everybody else. But we're not that really not that far from Campbell River. It's uh, about an hour and a half, two-hour trip to get into town by boat and ferry and car. So um, we've got access to groceries and whatnot. It's just that it's not a very pleasant trip. And often the weather will stop us from going. So we stock up. So I've got all sorts of dry goods and whatnot. And then a great big garden, and we've got the whole ocean to to um feed us the shore the shoreline and the fish out in the middle and occasionally someone will come along and um, provide me with a bit of venison so we eat well out here
1: so what was it like raising a family out there
3: well that was that was good um, I liked it because I was on an island and had a certain amount of control of the the social environment around me which was good in this day and age I think um, the kids had playmates, but they were on other islands, and um, they couldn't get together terribly easy, but we made an effort to to have sleepovers and whatnot, and uh, they ran wild, basically. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted, um, although they were hyper-aware of things like cougars and whatnot, and so it didn't stray too far from the house when they were younger, But uh, they got into all kinds of things and projects and kept themselves busy and uh, went to a school on, a, on the next island, so it was boat trip every morning, hmm. and they did that for um, up until grade eight. There, It was a, a small school. I think at, the, at its heyday, there were about 35 kids in it in two classes. It's uh, shrunk a little since, like most schools have, but uh, it's still a very good school. And all of the grads out of that school seem to have gone on and done very well in the outside world, so um, it was effective. And then high school they had to go off to Campbell River and they boarded um, for the later years in high school. And it seems to have worked out pretty well.
1: Now, you said when you arrived you guys didn't have uh, much money, so how did you earn a living out on the island?
3: Well, at first, um, it was like a lot of the people around here. We were working away. We were up in the oil patch in the Arctic and whatnot. Um, my husband carried on with that for a few years after we arrived, and then when that golden goose died, he um, came or found work in the in the area on fish farms and that sort of thing. And we also established an oyster lease. So um, I had a I had a job there when he left. Um, I carried on with the oyster lease, and uh, it, put, you know, helped me stay on the island and uh, keep going with the kids. And um, it was hard work, but it was there, so it worked.
1: Yeah, what was it? Yeah, what was it like farming oysters?
3: Well, I had a I had a, a beach lease, which meant that all my oysters were just sitting down on the ground, and were only accessible when the tide was out. So that meant that I had to. Um, make the nine-mile trip to the beach by boat, and um, I would uh, sort oysters, pick, pick oysters, seed oysters, uh, clean oysters, all of that sort of thing, get deliveries together once a week. And it was great in the summertime because I was on the beach in the sunshine, and it was beautiful, mm. and I enjoyed it, and I could swim afterwards to get rid of the beach mud. And But in the wintertime, it wasn't so easy because the low tides are in the middle of the night, so then it was 2 o'clock in the morning with the Coleman lantern and the Ooh. headlamps and uh, kneeling down in the mud with the rain pouring down, and that was not so pleasant. <laughs> but like I say, it was uh, it was a job, and uh, there were some good times. There were some beautiful nights when it was moonlit, and the uh, herons were fishing in my pool of light, and that sort of magical kind of thing was going on. That was good. One night I, I stood up and picked up my buckets of oysters to walk back up the beach and there were cougar tracks about six feet behind me so he'd obviously come down and taken a look at me doing whatever I was doing and decided it wasn't uh, wasn't very interesting unless but
1: <laughs> you probably that was, smell like oysters
3: <laughs> yeah I
1: think so yeah <laughs> how is the community like up there
3: oh we've got a great community I grew up in um suburban Toronto and I think how isolated and alone I was in that situation compared to what we've got here. Even though sometimes I'm the only person on my island, I've got all these uh, wonderful people around on the neighboring islands, as well as the, the more seasonal people who, who come to this island. And there's always, uh, I don't know, good company and everyone's always glad to see each other because we're not always rubbing elbows. And it's always a treat to, to run into someone and have a wee chat. So I'd say this is a much more sociable place than any other place that I've lived in, Um, especially more sociable than the city.
1: Did you move off the grid to almost escape the culture of the city?
3: I certainly did uh, escape it because I found it boring. Even though there there was all the culture and all the rest of it, I just felt that the city wasn't quite real in some ways. My life in the city wasn't real. I couldn't figure out why I was doing the things I was doing day in and day out. Um, It was just for money, and I couldn't figure out what the money was ultimately going to get me, except comfort and security, I guess. And I wasn't too interested in those things when I was young. So I came out here and uh, started living, uh, like I say, an adventure every day. And uh, it, it just seemed like the things that I was doing were incredibly relevant to my life. I mean, they fed me, they sheltered me, they clothed me. Um, they just kept me alive in a, in a way that the things I was doing in the city, they, they seemed like five or six steps removed from all of that. I couldn't see the reality of it. So, yeah, I was escaping the city culture, although I really do love to go back to the city every now and then for two or three days and, um, you know, see a show, go to the symphony or something. That part I miss, but everything else I'm really happy just here.
1: I hear you have quite a, uh, a large book club.
3: Oh yeah, we've got a wonderful book club. It's been going for 35 years, and uh, there's I don't know probably almost 50 members by now, I guess. But for any given meeting, we only have between 12 and 15 who show up for a meeting. They all come in by boat, or um, if it's on their island, then by bicycle or pickup truck or whatever. And uh, we meet in a different home every month, so that means that we all get to get a really good view of the of the area in a about a 10 mile radius i guess our community is so um yeah it's a it's a great social um connector i guess the women um it's a mostly a women's uh book club although the odd man occasionally sneaks in and has a bite of lunch with us but because he's um, driven a a few people there in his boat. Uh, But it's a good, it's a great time.
1: What led you to to start this club?
3: The book club? Yeah. I I was one of the early members. I don't think I started it. Uh, But we were, I think, a lot of young mothers in those days out on, on our own islands and looking for a social connection, but also looking... something to stimulate our brains because uh, toddlers can only be so stimulating. So (laughs) it was, yeah, it was was just an effort to get our minds in gear and do something a little bit more interesting. And it's been incredibly popular. We've met every month. I don't think we've missed a month in 35 or so years. And, uh, yeah, um, I'd say most people, most of the members will – Attend at least a third of the meetings in a year. Some of us will get there every meeting, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a good way to to keep connected and to keep all the islands um, tied together. I think.
1: I was wondering if there were any other animal stories that uh that were maybe a little thrilling.
3: <laughs> oh wow! People have all sorts of um, all sorts of encounters, I guess, with wildlife out here because. Um, they're they're around us all the time, even when we don't see them, aren't aware of them. I'm sure there are cougar and bear and wolves watching us and wondering what the heck we're up to. But, uh, oh, there have been stories where children have um, had encounters with cougars and um, managed themselves very well and got themselves out of the situation. Um, last summer, I had a bear in my orchard. And my little white dog decided to chase it out. And that was the scariest part of that episode, was just watching the dog. But uh, the bear decided he didn't appreciate the dog and and left, which was nice. Um, No, I I don't have any really scary stories, because I don't think any of those animals have ever properly scared me. Um, They've always been very polite and uh, managed to um, sort of leave in appropriate times, So. I'm not too worried about animals out here.
1: Why did you decide to move off the grid?
3: Well, I think we were sailing in this area on one of our summers, and I just looked at it and I thought that this, I didn't know why everybody in the world didn't live in a place that was this beautiful. I couldn't imagine uh, any better place to live. And so when we actually found some land that we could afford... Although it wasn't on the grid, it's not that we chose to move off the grid. We just chose to move to a place where there happened to not be any electricity. And uh, it was, like I say, it was something we could afford. That was one thing. It was beautiful. Um, It was in a place that was isolated but seemed to have a community around it. So that was another plus. And we knew a few people in the area, too. So yeah the off the grid wasn't the, what we were aiming at. we were just aim- we were just looking for a good life and it happened to be that it was going to be an off-grid life and that was all doable. so we just went ahead and did it.
1: Thank you, Judith, for speaking with us at All that Matters in CGSR. Um, I hope uh, the book club keeps going strong and uh, and you keep enjoying your life out there and off the grid.
3: Thanks a so lot, Josh, and uh, hope we see you out here sometime.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks to Judith Wright for speaking with us.
0: You're listening to All That Matters from CGSR. So we've heard from two people who acted on the urge to get off the grid. Now, not all now not all of us can leave the city though because of our jobs, our family, or school. So how do we tap into that creative energy, that sense of community that Judith and Mark talked about?
1: I think the best thing you could do is maybe once a week, you know, go for a hike and anyone you meet out on the trail, I mean, that's someone you can talk to and you'd be surprised how happy they are just to chat and, or even, you know what, just go trek into the bush somewhere just for a couple hours and try not to get lost, but just look at nature.
0: I find sometimes when you hear people talk about their experiences in the wilderness, it seems like it's made them a better person than who they were in the city. Do you think that they have some kind of moral high ground in in taking the high road and going off the grid?
1: I don't know if it's a moral high ground, but it's definitely a way of life. Um, And everyone's different, though. So whether you live in the city or in the suburbs or off the grid, you know, just try to find happiness. What
0: well, that's all the time that we have today for All That Matters. All That Matters is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Thanks to Gwen Mann and Chris Cheng yan Phillips for production help this week. Our theme music is by Dokasha Teru. Additional music today by Russian Murphy.
1: We love hearing from you all out there in Listenerland. Tweet us and let us know what you thought of the show. We're at CJSR. We're also on Facebook and our email address is all that matters at CGSR.com. Our website is allthatmatterscjsr.wordpress.com.
0: If you have friends who don't know about All That Matters on the radio map, point them out to our direction. It means a lot to us when you point them to our website or ask them to tune in. I'm Sarah Campbell Fuzema.
1: And I'm Josh Turpin. Thanks for listening.